Welcome to episode seven of Red Boy Rewind. Today's special guest is Mike Maloney. Today we talk about prepping for the beginning of a meet, when to take a first-time starter in a maiden race, state breads moving to open company, and improving horses on the turf, and much, much more. This is Red Board Rewind. Spencer Lugmill, and I would like to introduce a handicapping author. The book name is Betting with an Edge, and a full-time horse player. My special guest is Mike Maloney. How are you doing today, Mike? Doing well, Spencer. Thanks for having me. As I know, and hopefully a lot of people know, one of your favorite tracks to play is Keeneland. Keeneland is obviously right around the corner, two days from opening day. I just kind of wanted to start off our talk today with some ideas on how to prep for a meet and what you kind of look for you know, a week or two out, what are you like starting to build for your attack of the Keeneland meet this fall? Well, to be, to be perfectly honest, Spencer, I, since I've kind of grown up at Keeneland, I got thrown out of, out of a high school class, uh, looking at the racing form for Keeneland going to sneak out later in the day. So I've been doing, uh, playing Keeneland a long time and, and I, uh, where most tracks I do do a little, uh, uh, prep and, and stat work at Keeneland, if I don't understand it by now, <clears throat> then shame on me. So uh, I, I, I basically know what, you know, what angles I'm looking to apply at Keeneland and, and uh, maybe I fly by the seat of my pants a little bit there. When you first started out, what were some of the beginner, you know, stuff that you wanted to try to make sure you remembered and try to take, you know, notes down from meet to meet? At Keeneland, I'm I'm always trying to approach it as a as a, as a boutique meet, which it is, and approach it as a as a prestigious meet, which it is. And one of the angles that's helped me through the years is just giving extra credence to horses that are pointed toward Keeneland, horses that may be owned by someone that has a Keeneland connection or a Lexington native or a uh, or uh, maybe a, one of the farms uh, in the, in central Kentucky that will point a horse for Keeneland, will try extra hard to win a race at Keeneland uh, just because it means a little something extra to them. So that's something that, that, that's worked well for me in the past. And, and uh, it, it's, you know, it's not uh, something that shows up, you know, that I can put out in a stat, but it's, uh, it's something that works well in practice. Are there any certain ownership groups that come off the top of your head that you could tell us about? There are lots of them. Uh, you know, one that just pops in my head is, is uh, G. Watts Humphrey. I, uh, he has a farm not far from Lexington, and, and he has connections with Keeneland. And I think uh, you know his horses always seem to run well at Keeneland. So uh, whether he consciously tells his trainers I want to win at Keeneland or not, it doesn't really matter to me because I know the the reality is that 
his horses seem to year in and year out to run well at Keeneland. And there are, you know, Rusty Arnold is his main trainer. He also has some horses with Vicki Oliver, who I believe may be his daughter or daughter-in-law. Those horses are well-meant. Some of the horses that, that Rusty and uh, Vicki Oliver train that aren't owned by Watson Free are also uh, often well-intended at Keeneland, and sometimes at huge prices. So it is a track where connections, a little bit like Saratoga, where connections sometimes can can be the deciding factor when you have a field of horses that are closely matched. You bring up Saratoga, and what's one of the things that I love to follow at Saratoga the first few weeks or when shippers come in and out, because obviously every single track in the country it seems like a horse comes out of there for the Saratoga meet. Are there any certain tracks for the first few weeks that we should be looking for that usually fire early, or is it more or less that you look to wait for a horse to get a race over the track? I do like a race over the track, but it seems like the sh- the shipping tracks can vary from meet to meet. Um, one one track I will point out that that seems to offer pretty consistent value over the meets uh at keeneland is indiana downs the racing is improving there uh especially the turf racing some of those i I play indiana downs most days that it runs and uh the the depth of those turf races the maiden turf races there the a other thans has improved significantly over the last two or three years so I, i expect that trend to continue and and, uh, you know, especially in the turf races for horses at Indiana Downs to, to uh, consistently outrun their odds. It's good that you say that because for us guys in New York, it's always been Finger Lakes. It's like that B or C rated track. So for you to say a track like Indiana Grand, which a lot of people will usually just skip over, and for it to be a specific surface and not both surfaces, now I definitely will be starting to look for uh, Indiana Grand horses on the turf course. Is there any – now, I know a lot of people, Wesley Ward with his two-year-olds usually will be very, very good in the spring in the spring meet for Keeneland. Are there any trainers that you've noticed that have just been super solid over the last three or four meets in the fall? Not, not really, but uh, that will probably uh, expose itself early in the meet. One, one thing I uh, – I said the same thing about Kentucky Downs when – uh, Pete was nice enough to have me on a, uh, a month or so ago. Keeneland is another track like Kentucky Downs where uh, trainers will will get very hot and trainers will get very cold. And, uh, you know, good trainers can get very cold or very hot sometimes. Uh, Dale Romans is a case of uh, a few meets ago. Uh, Dale was, was ice cold here and was, you know, and Dale's a top-notch trainer. But uh, he does, you know, I think he's more focused. He's a Louisville guy. I think he's more fo- focused on Churchill Downs. Doesn't mean he can't win at Keeneland. But I'm less inclined to uh, give Dale the benefit of the, of the doubt at Keeneland, whereas at Churchill I'm looking to play him in certain situations. Uh, say at Keeneland I might uh, – I might do the same thing with Ken McPeak. I might look to play him more as a general rule at, at Keeneland. He's a Lexington guy, went to Tate Creek High School, I think, here. And um, um, most Lexington natives, it just, 
you know, when you come to Keeneland, it means something a little extra to, to win a race here with your friends and family around. Um, also, to, to touch back on the on the hot trainer aspect, opening weekend will be Fall Stars uh, weekend, and there'll be a lot of shippers and a lot of top-class horses and a lot of big-name trainers, so it'll be a little harder to get a read. But even under those circumstances, there'll be guys like uh, maybe a Mark Cassie or uh, – you know, maybe even a, 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 a guy like Rusty Arnold that I mentioned earlier that will show themselves early on in those first couple of cards that their horses are hot. They'll, they'll win a race or they'll win two races. They may have another horse at 20 to 1 that runs a strong second. And, and you'll know if you're paying close attention that if you find one of their horses that fits the race, that you're probably going to get, you know, a good performance from that horse. And that's, and that's all I'm looking for with these trainer angles. It's just, it's just to know that the, the statistical probabilities are slightly in my favor. There was a bit of a speed bias at Kentucky Downs. I know that the weather has been pretty high out there in Kentucky. Do you think that we're going to continue to see more of a speed bias with Keeneland? I, I anticipate uh, the turf course to be both turf courses to, to be lending the speed. I anticipated that also at, at Churchill uh, in the short September meet that just ended. Uh, we had a, a very dry late summer and early fall here in, uh, in Kentucky. So I'm, I'm in Lexington. So uh, it, it has, we haven't had a, a significant rain here for well over a month and, and maybe two months. So, um, the turf course should be very, very tight and very firm. Now, when the when the rails are out, it it'll be even it'll tend even more to speed. Opening weekend, I would I would anticipate that you will the the rails will probably be down. So if we see speed uh, do well on Keeneland's turf course the first three days, if the rails are down, then the following Wednesday. I would anticipate the rails would go up and that bias, if, if it, if it does show itself opening weekend, that bias could be very pronounced on, on Wednesday and Thursday of the next week. Now with turf racing, we have usually everyone thinks it's going to be closers and the late pace figures. So for you to say it possibly being a speed bias, that's a complete opposite end of the spectrum of what people usually think. So Usually with speed horses, we tend to get some bigger prices. So maybe in the turf races this weekend, we might see some bombs. Possibly. And I can, you know, and I can be wrong. Like I mentioned at, you know, the same weather, uh, the same weather situation was in effect at Churchill. And I, you know, I expected a significant bias on the Churchill turf course and there, it did tend to speed most days, but, it, it wasn't as pronounced. The bias wasn't as pronounced as I thought it might be. Doesn't mean that, you know, that Keeneland may play out the same way where we have a, a slight bias that doesn't, you know, really impact the results of a lot of races. But I have seen Keeneland's turf course in previous years where we had similar weather. I've seen Keeneland's turf course play very speed favorite where it did dictate the results of a lot of races. So uh, it's, it's something that is worth being, uh, being aware of and, and, and really 
taking the time to evaluate in real time the first turf race or the first couple of turf races that are run at Keeneland this weekend. I'm sure a lot of people have played Keeneland, but for someone who might, this might be a new track for them, what do you look for before you're comfortable making a bet? That's kind of a hard question. You know, I'm always looking for my guiding principle with any bet is I just want the best of it. You know, I I want, uh, I want to have some type of edge. Uh, You know, if I pick up the racing form and I'm looking at uh, some track that I've never played, which that's probably hard to find after all these years, but you know, I don't anticipate that I would have any edge there, but uh, at a place like Keeneland, I have trips and bias notes on 80 or 90% of the horses that will run there. So I feel like the work I've done uh, and the experience I have there will lead to situations, not every race, but they'll, it will lead to numerous situations during the meet where the, the data that I look at and, and knowing what I know about the horse's previous form I will see situations where I will think the odds are stacked uh, strongly in my favor and I will, you know, have chances to bet horses at eight to one where in, in my mind, their true chances of winning might be half that. So, you know, that's what I'm looking for anywhere I play. And, you know, just like any other serious gambler. That's a ton of super useful information. I hope somebody will get some, Nice gold nugget out of that. What do you say? I, I know I sent you a rundown, Mike. What do you say we get into the races from last week? We've got a couple from Belmont and Santa Anita and maybe sure. even a few from Churchill. Let's start off Belmont race number two on Saturday. The winner of the race was Captain Bombastic. He paid a little over $10, and the winning buyer was a 64. The buyer par for that race in DRF is a 68, so he ran right around it. The favorite was first deputy, and I just find that a horse like that, when they've been racing on the turf, and now they're switching over. I know the horse was only five to two, and it wasn't like a super, super big favorite, but that still, I think, is the wrong type of horse to take at those odds. I think when you look at the winner, really good jockey and I read Ortiz, very, very good sprinting trainer in Jeremiah Englehart. What what are your thoughts about taking first-timers over wrong surface horses? Well, to be honest, these type races, my dad used to call these one-liners, horses that have you know, no starts, one start or two starts. And uh, they're not the races that I do the best in because there's not the depth of information to work with that, that there are in, in races for older, more experienced horses. So uh, to me, a lot of what you you base your betting opinion on in this type race is, you know, our statistical uh, angles, pedigree angles, but, you know, those angles aren't as reliable to me as knowing, uh, you know, a horse's trip and and how the track was playing that day and what the times were. Uh, But to to address this race, the seven horse first deputy who was who was went off the favorite. um, One big red flag to me is that I think Linda Rice is an excellent second time out trainer, and you can almost always depend on her horses to improve in their second lifetime start. 
and this horse went the other direction as the favorite and and that's a big red flag to me so I, a first deputy would not have been a horse that that i would have been drawn to um this was not a race that i played uh the winner captain bombastic uh i i think the the obvious way to be on that horse would just be the the trainer angle that jeremiah Englehart has had a tremendous year with two-year-olds i mean he was uh had great success at saratoga with two-year-olds and a lot of them were a little uh a little soft on the board they weren't like getting pounded and yet they would run uh excellent races so I think that was basically has carried over to Belmont apparently. And, uh, you know, I think with, with the weakness that had been shown by first deputy and the strong hands that Campton Bombastic was in, uh, you know, the, this was a winner that could have possibly been gotten to. Jeremiah is definitely on like my sneaky trainer list. I, I grew up playing Finger Lakes. My dad loves to play Finger Lakes. So I'm, I'm so used to the Inglehearts winning every race. And then when I started moving out to Belmont and Aqueduct and I'm seeing the Inglehearts win at like eight, nine to one, I was like, oh, so this is where we can get their value. This is really nice. One other uh, concept really quick on this race. What are your feelings on first time starters on the rail? Is it usually an auto toss for you? Does it depend on the trainer or the workouts or so many people just they look at first timers on the rail and they just auto toss them. And I mean, this horse paid a really, really nice price, 1120. I feel that it's almost become like a taboo subject almost where it's horses on the rail, first time starter, insta toss. Yeah, and and for, for good reason. I, you know, it's a tough post for a first time starter. Uh, it, you know, it's easy for them to, to duck in at the start. Uh, and then really where most of them have their issues is a few strides into the race as the pace starts to develop. It's easy from that one pole to either end up dueling on the rail and using too much horse in a bad spot or more often to be a couple of lengths off the pace and have the field start to work their way over on you as you come into the turn. You get shuffled, you get in tight, you catch a lot of dirt. It's a great learning experience for a young horse, and they I think they progress out of that type race. But yeah, the you know I uh, I worry about the one hole with the first time starter. I do think that it matters a lot uh, what track we're talking about, and I think it's it's um, you know I think Saratoga the conditions there this summer where the rail tended to be a little dead anyway. You had kind of a double whammy for a horse that was trying to, to work from the one hole. So uh, under those conditions, it might be an automatic toss. Uh, under the conditions that uh, have been prevalent at Belmont so far, I, I haven't really seen uh, uh, a, a dead rail going on there. So uh, it, while it's a slight disadvantage, it wouldn't be an automatic pitch. Do you tend second time out if you see a horse that maybe had the rail first time out and now he's in like the four or five? four or five hole, do you tend to give that horse a tiny shred of extra credit? Sure. I think, you know, like I just described there, especially the horse that, that, that got in the race early from the one pole. I think those are the horses that you'll find will improve the most their second start. It's a, it's not nearly as disadvantaged a trip to be six or eight lengths off the pace on the rail 
and let things settle out in front of you. And then, you know, maybe you're even able to tip out halfway through the race. Uh, that's a whole different trip than the trip where you break, you're a first time starter, you break from the one hole, you show speed, you're in the race and, and you're just intimidated by, uh, how tight you are pinned to the rail or how much dirt you're, you're catching in your face your first time out. So I think those two trips are, are very different. And, uh, you know, you, you, you approach them differently when the horses run back. I think it's very interesting too. the uh, favorite there. First deputy only ran back first time on the dirt, but it was a 59 buyer. So still hasn't improved over that first race. So it's, I didn't even think of that angle with Linda's second time out and not running as fast. So that made the horse even more of a vulnerable favorite. Belmont race number three. The winner was the number two power player, paid 1380. The winning buyer was an 86. Uh, the favorite was Everyone Loves James. He was a three time state bred winner, and he'd only raced one time since the uh, trainer change or since the private purchase. Three back now was the optional claiming 25. And he kind of had his doors blown off there as a short price at two to one. What do you kind of do with horses that are coming out of state bred races and running well and then going into open company? What uh, what makes a horse a good bet for you and what makes one a vulnerable choice? Well, well, you know, once again, that's a that's an answer that you know you have to answer in a, in a you know in in many different levels. It, number one, it depends what state we're talking about. You know, if if uh, uh, you know some state bred programs are much stronger than other state bred programs. In this particular instance, there were some other factors. Also, I know it's sept- late September when this race ran, but still, you have the the two horses who end up winning the race uh, coming out of a graded stake, uh, open stake, but it, but it's a, a three year old stake. And the eight horse, you know, it was a four-year-old that was running against state breads, but running against older state breads. That helped even some of that out. I'm not sure if it evened all of the class edge out, but it evened some of it out. I actually got involved in this race, uh, and I really liked Swamp Rat, the seventh. He ran fourth. I put the horse on my watch list after the race. Um, I, I think he is a horse to to kind of keep an eye on. This this might be a, a kind of a good uh, teachable, talkable race because uh, my uh, and and you know there are probably uh, lots of serious players that might not see this the same way, but my view of this race was that all the horses that did well in the race, all the running was done on the rail. And Swamp Rat was stuck wide the whole the entire race, broke a little slowly, didn't really get his position. And even with all those things against him, he got beat a couple of lengths in the end. So um, this is the kind of uh, uh, approach I use to racing that has, has worked for me over the years. Um, I'll be very interested in betting Swamp Rat, Swamp Rat back when he runs back because in my eyes, he ran as well as the two-horse power player who, who won the race. Uh, I think back in this condition, again, with a, with a decent trip, Swamp Rat will be, will be very tough. 
so you know we're back to the idea of of just trying to get some type of edge um swamp rat i think uh you know i would fully anticipate his next race probably going to be back in the same condition uh, most likely going to be back in new york and uh i think he will be an overlay that his real chances of winning will be uh you know won't be reflected in the odds that his odds will be will be higher than they actually should be swamp rat had run an 81 in that race so it's interesting that by you saying with the different trip that he ran just as well which would have been an 86 that's a big edge you can bring out on people if you're like yeah this horse ran 86 everyone else sees the 81 and now he might have the best ability figure against another couple horses when he runs back if he didn't run back in an allowance and maybe they dropped him into a claiming race would that be cause for concern that would be a red flag spencer because his next start will be his 11th start and you know he's a three-year-old colt you know that that has you know has run very consistently you know he's a hard trier and uh he's already already earned one hundred and thirty thousand dollars plus whatever he got for fourth in this race uh, so yeah, that would be that would be a red flag. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't like that, and uh, I would I would read that as something, you know, being uh, awry with the horse. Let's move on to race number four. It was the Grade One Vosburg. It was probably one of the best thrilling stretch runs I've ever seen for a four horse field. Uh, I know a couple people that I know were on Forenze Fire when he collared Imperial Hint mid-stretch. I thought he's actually going to pull it off, and it looks like another horse for course angle. Little Imperial Hint on the rail comes back and wins. For the people who had Forenze Fire, and I know that you play a lot of races, and so I know you probably end up you know, on the fair end of the wrong side of the photo. Uh, how do you just deal – this was earlier on in a longer card for the weekend – it was only the fourth race. You know, some people might, you know, go on tilt and, you know, start just throwing, you know, bad money around and trying to get back to even. What do you do to kind of, you know, settle your nerves and just, you know, stay stay on your plan, your betting plan for the day? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, I call it the emotional roller coaster. And um, what I've found that works for myself is if I keep, when things are going well and when I have a big win, um, if I, if I contain myself and don't let myself get on a crazy high, then it's much easier when things are going poorly to contain myself and not go on a crazy low. So I try to stay off that emotional roller coaster. I try to look at, at, at racing, uh, and, and betting horses every day as simply uh, keeping the odds in my favor, finding value, and consistently staying, uh, you know, on that value train. And that doesn't mean you win every race, and that doesn't mean you win every other race. All it means is that if you'll be true to that and you really understand what value is, that the odds, you know, at the end of the year – will will kind of take care of you because if you bet you know 5000 races and and you keep the odds in your favor for nearly all of those I still you know I'm going to have my screw ups where you know I look back I red board uh, 
myself. And then I look back and I say, you know, what in the world was I doing with that play? But uh, if, if you can make, uh, if you can stay true to the value thesis and you do understand what, what, what value truly is, then um, things tend to work out for you. So that, that's the, I try not to get caught up in the, in too much of the race to race day to day stuff. Although it's impossible not to react sometimes when, uh, you know, when something goes, uh, goes terribly wrong, but, uh, uh, you, you, the, your biggest enemy, if you're going to be at the racetrack on a regular basis, your biggest enemy is tilt and your biggest enemy is yourself. I think Pete and I said in the book that how you handle, uh, how a player handles his worst losing streaks is what, in the end, is what defines him as a player. And I really believe that, that, uh, you know, unless you know how to lose properly, you you have no shot of, of, of winning at the racetrack long term. I really like that last thing, the way you define yourself. Now, I know you talked about how you read board yourself and something that got brought up on last week's show with Ed DeRosa is poker players and how they, you know, they'll reveal their hand histories and they'll ask people who might be better than them or some, maybe somebody who had a better idea of the hand. Like, where did I go wrong? What could I have done better? We never see that with race. Like, we see people who post, you know, they're big winners. No one ever posts a loser for the most part. Or maybe they'll post a four out of five where they feel they got unlucky. Because once someone starts posting losing tickets, they just get told, oh, you're a loser, you're not good at the game, you're never going to beat it. Then there's not that camaraderie where I would love for people to look through a racetrack like Belmont and look through like my four or five plays for the day and tell me where I could have you know, extracted more value. Why isn't that done more in the uh, horse racing community? Well, I, you know, I think it is done some in the, you know, among horse players, you know, among uh, people that you respect their opinion and you, and you trust. I don't think it's done a lot online. And, and I think that's just, uh, uh, you know, I think that's just uh, a longer conversation and part of, uh, of social media and how it, uh, you know, how it sometimes brings out the worst in people. But um, you're, 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 you're totally right about there's so much to be learned as a player uh, from your past mistakes. And I listened to, the show with with you and Ed, and I thought you guys did a did a great job of of you know of bringing that out and and uh, discussing it. So uh, my suggestion would be, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up with with a father that was uh, as crazy about horse racing as I was, and uh, he was always willing to give a very a firm opinion of, you know, what you had done right and what you had done wrong. Uh, so, so I was lucky that way. And that, and that saved me a lot of time going down a lot of dead, dead ends, uh, in racing and trying to figure out what was important, what factors were important and what factors weren't. But I would suggest that, that any, uh, serious player or someone aspiring to be a serious player would, um, you know, try to find a, uh, a, a friend that had similar interests or someone at the track or, or even someone, you know, online that you could DM and say, Hey, you know, here's what I did. What, you know, what do you think about that play? I think that would be invaluable to a player to have a, to have a second opinion on, on what he does at the track. 
I think that the number one thing that probably stunted me before I started, you know, working for Naira for the Bet Squad and really hanging out with people on Twitter was a lot. Of, it was just me and my father. A lot of my friends didn't really even know about the races. They were more of, you know, video games and sports and stuff like that. So, I mean, I over the years now, I've collected, you know, your book, James Quinn. I mean, if, if, if there's a book on racing and I don't have it, it's either out of print and I can't get it or something uh, that I wouldn't really understand. You know, I mostly get out of those books and stuff. But now if we will move on to the next race at Belmont, race five, this was something that Peter brought up to my attention. I thought it was super interesting. What to do when multiple horses come out of the same race? So the number one laughable, the number four boxer rebellion and the number five, our little jewel all came out of the same race on September 1st, race seven. And they all ended up kind of being the same price out of this race. None of them won. The actual winner ended up being what I thought was a huge overlay winning by three and a half princess Caroline who ended up being a half to Lady Eli, big turf pedigree, big 83 winning buyer. So what do you kind of do when you have multiple horses coming out of the same race? Is it mostly come down to the trips or is it also the trainer intent? Yeah, it, it, it's it's both and it can be other factors, uh, you know, on top of that. Um, it, you know, that I like that situation normally uh, because, you know, if 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 I made figures on the racing question and I have a bias for the day and uh, I have trips on the horses that ran, uh, then then my approach is shame on me if I can't figure out, you know, who's the best horse. It races like the fifth at Belmont are, are you know, more involved in that because you – there's a lot of, of guessing in my eyes involved. So that was not a race that, that I played um, just because there are too many question marks for me. Uh, what one thing that, that Pete and JK mentioned on a, on a recent podcast was about how you, it was a great point, but, uh, and, and I already had it burned into my, to my memory banks from losing money. It's a great angle for people to get a hold of is that uh, a first time starting Chad Brown long on the turf is even if they're icy on the board, you, you can't discount them. They're they They can still win. Um, and you know, that that's what happened here. You would, you know, it's almost like the half to lady Eli thing was almost a negative to me in the in the in my betting uh uh analysis of the race because you would think that uh you know in the same barn where lady eli did all the fantastic things that she did if this horse had had ability princess of caroline how could she not be the darling of the barn how could she not be being universally touted but but it the fact that 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 she paid the price that she did just points out how strong the the chad brown angle is that you can't always follow the money with his first time starters i mean listen after pharaoh won the triple crown and then his half sister was out open it was like either opening day at delmar opening weekend and she paid something like eight to one. Like I didn't even handicap that race. I just saw it was a half to Pharaoh. And I just ran to the window and bet, bet a nice, you know, action win bet. 
And when she won by six, I was like, what was everybody else looking at in that race? Like it, when you have horses that, you know, with like horses like Wise Dan, like half of these horses that have been up for horse of the year and then their big prices, they almost just have to be added. I know for Chad, because I use a lot of formulator, he always is the top trainer in route wins every single meet. And he's always the same one for the turf. You know, Jason Service, Linda Rice, they give him some, you know, you know, some competition for the turf sprints. But I mean, Chad really just owns everybody for turf routes right now. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you. One other point, uh, Spencer, that I that I'd make in that race that that might be interesting to some of the listeners. Uh, number five, our little jewel in that race, is normally the kind of horse that that I like to build a vertical wager around. A horse that has started twice. So, uh, you know, I'm beginning to get an understanding of the horse's preferences and the horse's abilities. Um, she ran a 54 buyer, her first start sprinting on the turf, came back routing on the turf, kind of showed that that, that was uh, her preferred distance, ran a 70, um, a nice race. Uh, showing lots of potential now coming back for the third lifetime start long on the turf again you would expect more improvement and for the horse to be a good vertical key that you know that's the type of horse that I normally look for but my point in going over this horse is that in route turf races when these especially these young horses put blinkers on it's um it it brings another factor into play to where in my vernacular i'll say i don't trust the horse so what i'm trying to say in a long-winded way is these young horses that that are that are turf routers that put blinkers on for the first time it's a real wild card it's not always a positive and it can be a negative and you'll see it try to race or two with lots of horses, lots of young horses, and then be a failed experiment to where they're a bet once the blinkers come back off. So just something that I don't hear a lot of discussion about that I think is a, is a valid handicapping angle. Do you think you'll bet her next time out or is it more of a wait and see approach? kind of a wait and see approach i um you know if if blinkers come off i'm definitely going to have to take a look at her because i you know that angle it it uh it's really a nice angle because you can you can uh, kind of uh downplay in your wagers a horse that looks very solid Uh, you know in my way of thinking our little jules pps going into the fifth at Belmont on Saturday looked very strong, uh, especially strong if you're talking about the vertical wagers, the exactas and the tries. And when you can take a horse that really looks solid and downplay them in your wagers and may, you know, maybe play most of your money against them, that's a pretty strong angle if, if, you know, if, if, if it really works you know, a good percentage of the time. And I know uh, that after a bad couple of races with blinkers on, lots of times these horses that showed potential early on the turf, 
uh, once those blinkers come off, they'll revert back to previous form sometimes. Now, sometimes they won't too, you know, no angles a hundred percent, but, uh, you really get some value after a couple of bad races and, and they come back to the turf. Now, another thing that can happen, I know from, from owning horses and being on the backside for a year is a trainer can adjust the blinkers. He can, he can take away a little of that cup or he can, uh, try a little different style of blinker. And sometimes that works with a horse. So it's second time blinkers. We don't know that, that there was a, you know, an adjustment made to the blinkers, but you know, that was what the horse wanted. And then they revert to their best form. So there's lots of little nuances there, but you know, I just think it's an angle that was worth bringing up. There's definitely a lot of nuggets in that response with blinkers on blinkers off. It's interesting that she ran at 59 this race. So maybe more of an in and out kind of form cycle. She might cycle back up to around a 70 next time she comes in around the same, you know, route turf, Hopefully the blinkers stay on again, which I think would be a definite positive. I don't know. I, for me, I would have to see a, a a really good race from her in blinkers before I would bet her in blinkers. But they, that's just the way I would approach it. Well, Mike, let's go across to the other coast. Let's talk a little Santa Anita opening day. Uh, one of the races that really, really caught my eye for being a short field was the, uh, the chandelier, the grade one where Bast only won by a neck over comical. And for where Bast was, you know, being almost, you know, one to nine, one to five in the odds, didn't really show that big punch in the end. I, I thought it was very surprising that you could turn a horse like this into about, you know, seven to two, three to one with the exact is. I thought only Bast and Comical were the only two that made sense. And the exact to paid 80. You know, what other concepts do you have that where you can turn a even money shot like that and try to get some value out of it? Well, I, I think that makes sense, Spencer. I, you know, that's usually my go-to move when uh, I like a horse and I feel confident that it's going to win, but it, its odds are too short for me to actually bet it to win. Uh, you know, it's it's hard sometimes just to turn the page on the race and and you look for an alternative way to to play and and that you know usually the the uh, the one that pops up is is to key key your horse on top and and, you know, try to stab a cold exacta, uh, have no problem with that play, make it, you know, make it all the time. Um, I actually bet a, a small bet in this race. I wasn't smart enough to come up with comical to be the second horse. So, uh, I, I took a shot with KP dreaming to be the second horse and, uh, and she ran third, but comical ran uh, a good race. I, my, view of this race was was that the pace was very slow and it that it distorted the race just a little it makes me you know question Bast a little bit i'm i am sure baffert didn't have her cranked up for her uh you know for her best for this race and the works kind of say that too but uh um it, it still bothers me that um uh, uh, you know, that she didn't draw off a little more in the lane than she did. Um, and, and I thought that, um, uh, that KP dreaming, um, you know, was, you know, ran a decent race in here. She, she came home pretty well, uh, no pace to run at. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying she's a, she, uh, she's necessarily a grade one horse, but I think she's going to be a very useful horse. And that's the kind of horse that I would look 
you know, maybe I'm uh, the value runs away with me sometimes, but KP Dreaming would be the kind of horse that I would follow out of that race, thinking that even if her next spot isn't a spot she can win, it might be a spot where she would show value in the, you know, maybe the third spot of a try or the fourth spot of a super, uh, because I think she has an honest finish. And when you're dealing with two year olds going long, if you find a horse that has a good solid finish, uh, they will uh, overperform a lot of times. For me, and I don't know how many other people do this. KP Dreaming, she went from she started off with a 65 in her debut, 69 in the Maiden Breaker, and in this race she improved another six points to a 75. If you like a horse and you think the horse is going to run well, and then the buyer number coming back shows that, to me, you you made the right decision. She just maybe didn't run as well as the other horses. I was more shocked in this race that Comical went off the second or the third choice and that Ben studying her was almost, you know, half of her odds. It just seemed like everyone was just jumping on the Mike Smith bandwagon. The horse did win a state bread steak race last time out, but it was only a 72 buyer and Comical, you know, she'd shown ability in the first few starts. I know she won the race in the mud, in the Schuylerville, but I mean, 11 to one just seemed like such a big overlay to me. Yeah. You know, she, she was bred to, uh, to definitely handle the, the two turns and, and you know, she had kind of a, for a front running type horse, her races, uh, comicals races kind of suggested that she might stretch out, you know, she, uh, when even the, the races where she may have tired, she didn't completely give in, you know, she, she kind of ran even, and and uh, a lot of times that's what horses that want to go wire to wire in route races. That's the way their sprint races look. So, uh, you know, I can see what you're saying, and I just wasn't uh, I just wasn't correct in coming up with the second horse in that race. Let us move on to what was probably considered the race of the weekend. That's Saturday's race number ten at Santa Anita. The awesome again, the Grade One. This was supposed to be McKinsey's big prep going into Breeders' Cup, and an unlikely horse at twenty-five to one, Mongolian Groom, didn't even win by less than a length by a neck or head. I mean, really blew McKinsey out of the water by two and a quarter lengths. Any thoughts on this race, Mike? This would be total red board. Uh, th- this wasn't a race that that jumped out to me, uh, but I've. You know, I fully expected uh, McKenzie to win and and higher higher power to probably run second. But you know, in prepping for uh, speaking with you today, I went back and looked at this race again, and and uh, you know, it would have been a stretch. And I'm not saying I could have made the horse a winner, but Mongolian Groom does have a, a nice figure pattern. Um, you know, I like the. 98, 99, 100, you know, kind of a, uh, almost a triple top, you know, with a young horse that those horses sometimes will just explode with an up move, you know, and, and their buyer will jump by six, eight, ten points. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's what happened here. I wasn't sharp enough to uh, to come up with it ahead of time. But, it, but in the red boarding process, I can see that Magolian Groom – wasn't impossible and uh, you know and especially given the soft trip that he got you know that 
that matters a lot. That can, you know, that can bring out the, the improvement in a horse when you, uh, you know, when you put a horse like this on top in, in, uh, soft fractions, that's, uh, uh, that, that's sometimes when you'll get the optimum race. So looking back on it, the, at those odds, Mongolian groom was definitely value. I, you know, I'm not saying I could have, I could have picked him on top, but, uh, he, he, he is an interesting horse in retrospect. Something I know me and, uh, JK don't agree on a lot. I like to do what's called a ladder bet two to win four to place eight to show. And a lot of times when I look at horses like this, I don't think a lot of people really look at the odds of the past races. This horse had ran, you know, second at 12 to one third at 18 to one. So he was really outrunning his odds this whole year. Even if I thought McKinsey was the nuts and I'm, I'm actually anti McKinsey in a lot of his races. McKinsey only bounced, if it's even considered a bounce to a one a 108 off of his 111. Mongolian groom improved 10 points. You don't always have to find the winner to make value. For me, if I'm doing a ladder bet, I'm just hoping the horse can hit the board. And if he ends up winning the race, like that's just the gravy on top of it all. I just, this type of horse, I knew had a race like this in him, I thought. And I think McKinsey is just. I find it interesting now that they, you know, are pulling Mike Smith off. I don't really know what's going on with this horse or what they're thinking in the barn, but I think that Mongolian groom might be a decent horse in the, if they decide to go to the classic. Now this horse isn't, uh, it was a win in the ring, but he's not eligible because he wasn't nominated. I would say that the connection should just go for it. Anything else on Mongolian groom possibly going into the classic? I think he, he would have his work cut out for him if, if they do choose to, to supplement him. Um, that will be interesting to see what they actually do. I, uh, I assume they haven't made that decision yet. One thing I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, of the ladder bet either. I'm on, I guess on JK's team there, but what, but I do understand the, the concept and I'm, you know, in certain situations for certain people, I think, you know, it, 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 it may make sense. One thing I would point out though, is I, you know, I, I think it works better in a 10 or 12 horse field that's kind of an open race than it does in a six horse field or what does this end up being? Yeah, six horse field uh, where you have uh, a prohibitive favorite. Uh, you know, you in the latter bet, you, most of your money is bet to show and you ended up getting one to two on a 25 to one shot. So I would be cautious with, with, you know, with that part of it, you know, if I, I would be more inclined to suggest the, or recommend the, the latter bet to someone in a, in a more wide open, bigger field. I totally appreciate saying that Mike with the show betting. I know it's something I have to definitely work on. Definitely the field size makes a difference. That is all the time we have for today. I would like to thank my special guest, Mike Maloney, for coming on. Thanks a ton, Mike. Hope you had a good time on the podcast. Hey, yes, I have. Uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me on. Always good to talk racing. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. The chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And the In The Money Media business manager is Drew Cotney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.